This month, we're told, is Pride Month. Rainbow-colored T-shirts, bumper stickers, even flags flown on U.S. embassies around the world, announcing that a revolution is here and that we must join it. We must accept and even celebrate an ever-expanding alphabet soup of sexual behaviors, so-called identities, or else be shunned by society as haters. You're not permitted to dissent. Even parents are not permitted to interfere. The sexual identity you choose, at least the world would have you believe, trumps all. Trumps common sense, trumps biological reality. Far more disturbingly, it trumps the authority and rule of your creator. This month truly is a celebration of pride, man's arrogant act of rebellion against God's order of creation. It's not merely defiance against reason and biology, It's a rebellion against the Creator Himself and against His law. It's what happens when men exchange the truth about God for a lie. So it's a timely question we have in this morning's text. Why do the nations rage against the Lord and against His anointed? Daily war and violence plaster the front pages of our newspapers. Violent crime in our country has skyrocketed. It's reported that there, are some, that there were some 21,500 murders in 2020. That's nearly 5,000 more than 2019, a 29% spike, far outpacing the previous record, which was a 12.7% spike set in 1968. And this year, the numbers appear to be climbing higher. But make no mistake, even homicide is not merely one man's act of violence against another. It is an act of rebellion against the Creator and against His law. It is treason against the Lord. Oh, how the nations rage. But violence and woke culture are easy targets for any preacher. In fact, it's a popular spectator sport for Christians. We scan the godless society around us, and then we act shocked that godless people are behaving badly. What about the church in America? I'm sure you know that last month, a 288-page report commissioned by the Southern Baptist Convention was released. It found that allegations of sexual abuse were ignored or covered up for nearly 20 years by executive senior members of that conference. Oh, it's easy to take shots at the Roman Catholic Church for things like that. But when it hits a group of evangelical churches, like the Southern Baptist Convention, well, that's getting a little too close to home. Oh, how the nations rage. 
But what about you and me? We're good folk, right? We're not woke. We're not homicidal. We're not covering up allegations of abuse. No, most of us aren't like that. But there are many among us who rage against the Lord all the same. We do it differently, though. Our raging is more civilized. Our sins are what the late Jerry Bridges called respectable sins. Sins we can commit and still be a Sunday school teacher. He wrote in 2016, we were incensed, and rightfully so, when a major denomination ordained a practicing homosexual as a bishop. But why do we not also mourn over our selfishness, our critical spirit, our impatience, and our anger. It's easy to let ourselves off the hook by saying that these sins are not as bad as the flagrant ones of society. And you know that not all our sins are respectable, are they? Christians often do things that even pagans would not approve of. I don't need to list them, but before we cast stones at the culture and other churches for covering up evil, we must consider our own cover-ups. Yes, the cover-ups of good folk like you and me. Why do the nations rage, and why do you and I rage against the Lord and against his anointed? That's the question the psalmist asks in this morning's text. But before we dive in, let me give you the bird's eye view of this psalm, five facts that might help us get a better appreciation and understand this song. First, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together serve as a kind of introduction to this whole collection of psalms. The collection has about 150 of them. Psalm 2 is one of only 10 royal Psalms. Royal Psalms are Psalms that were written for the king or about the king. More specifically, and this helps us understand the text, this psalm is a coronation psalm, which means that it's about the crowning ceremony of the king. Also, as far as I can tell, Psalm 2 is the only psalm mentioned in the New Testament by its exact location in the Psalter. The Psalter is just what we call the book of Psalms, the collection of 150, that is. Paul quoted this psalm in a sermon in a synagogue at Antioch. He said, it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And we'll come back to that passage, but Paul lifted this directly from verse 7, and he gave us the exact location of it in the Psalter. I think that hints at how well-known this psalm was among the Jews at the time. The fourth fact that should help us is this. Not only was Psalm 2 well-known, but it became a key text for the New Testament authors. The New Testament quotes or alludes to Psalm 2 more than any other psalm. By my count, there are more than 20 citations or allusions to it in the New Testament. And number five, this psalm was written by King David. Some psalms have what is called an ascription above them, and it tells who the author was. Psalm 2 doesn't have one. 
However, we know who the author was from a prayer that's recorded in the book of Acts, chapter 4. The early disciples huddled together and they lifted up their voices to God and said, Sovereign God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then they go on to paraphrase the first two verses of this psalm. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. It's possible that King David composed this psalm later in life sometime after his own coronations. And I say coronations because there seem to be three times when, Paul, when uh, David was uh, crowned. Psalm 2 can easily be mapped out in four three-verse scenes or sections. Each scene shifts settings and speakers, and that's how we'll walk through it this morning. In verses 1 through 3, the kings of the earth rebel against the Lord. In verses 4 through 6, the Lord responds to their rebellion from heaven. In verses 7 through the 9, the king then declares the decree of the Lord and in verses 10 through 12, the psalmist states the demands of the Lord and then concludes with a beatitude. Let's jump in. The first scene is in verses 1 through 3. The setting is earth. And the kings of the earth speak. Now try to put yourself in the sandals of an Israelite just after the reign of King David. You're in the assembly of believers, and you're singing this psalm, and you're thinking about the crowning of the king. And as you sing the first line of this song, you get a sense or a tinge of mockery or sarcasm in the question, why do the nations rage? There's some ridicule in that question because you remember what the Lord promised to Joshua when your forefathers first entered this promised land. No man shall be able to stand before you. This is God telling Joshua, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. You also remember all the enemy nations that King David had just subdued by the hand of the Lord. The Philistines, the Moabites, the Syrians, the Edomites, the Ammonites. And you remember that the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Who in their right mind would go up against the Lord? Who can stand against the king that he anointed, the one who he put on the throne? Why do the nations rage? Well, that's a rhetorical question because the futility of it is simply laughable. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? You don't even finish singing that first sentence before the futility of what those enemies are plotting is made plain. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The uproar of these enemies is useless. It is vain for them to rebel against the Almighty. 
The word plot used here is worth underlining. If you do that in your Bible, circle it or underline it, and then draw an arrow up to Psalm 1, verse 2. We learned about last week. This is one of those poetic connections between these two introductory psalms. Remember last week, happy is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The word meditate in Psalm 1-2 is the same word translated plot in chapter 2, verse 1, or Psalm 2-1. So the happy man delights in and meditates on the law of the Lord. While the enemies of the Lord meditate on how to get out from under his law or his rule. Verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. These bonds and cords were the Leather straps used to hold the yoke in place on the back of oxen. And here they're being used as a metaphor. These rebels view the reign of the Lord, the reign of the Lord's king, as bondage. And they're plotting how they can get out from under it. That's scene one. The kings of the earth rebel against the Lord. We move to our second scene in verses 4 through 6. We shift from earth to heaven. And now it's the Lord who speaks. And how will he respond to these rebels? Verses 4 and 5. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Two things about the Lord's response. One, the Lord mocks them. He laughs, as it were, at their puny, pathetic, and utterly useless attempts to overthrow his rule, to rebel against his authority and his power. To rebel against the Lord is a laughable offense, though his laughter quickly turns to anger. The second thing about the Lord's response is this. He terrifies his enemies merely by speaking to them. And he puts rebels on notice. Verses 5 and 6. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. At the sound of the voice of the Lord, these rebels are filled with terror. That's how pathetic they are in relation to the one against whom they plot to rebel against. Notice three things about what the Lord says to these enemies. First, he tells them that Zion is his. He says, it is my holy hill, the city of God, the place of God's presence, the place where God dwells with his people is his If they want to overthrow it, they need to know who it belongs to and who they're up against. He's the one who set this city apart. This is not some far-off land that he may or may not defend. This is the Lord's capital city. It is his holy hill. Two, not only is Zion his, but the king is his. I have set my king on Zion. 
To rebel against this king is to rebel against me because he is mine, says the Lord. And number three, the Lord tells the rebels that he is the one who made him king. I, says the Lord, have set my king on my hill. The Lord established this king and the Lord established this kingdom. Who in their right mind would dare rise up against him? That is seen too. The Lord responds from heaven to the rebels, and now we move into scene three, and we shift from heaven back to earth, and now we hear from the king who declares what the Lord has decreed. Verses seven through nine. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. David is using the language of the covenant that the Lord made with him. We have that covenant recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it's worth highlighting a few aspects of that covenant. When your days are fulfilled, this is the prophet Nathan speaking for the Lord to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And the immediate fulfillment of this would be his son Solomon. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Circle that word forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. What a remarkable covenant promise. The Lord will establish the Davidic kingdom. That's the way it's known, the Davidic kingdom. I'm going to use that word a few times, so we may as well get used to it. It's the kingdom of David and all of his offspring. We call it the Davidic kingdom. He will establish the kingdom forever. It is an everlasting kingdom. And two, the Lord would be as a father to the king of Israel, this offspring of David, and the king would be as a son to the Lord. Here's the decree, verse 7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Well, clearly the Lord's not talking about giving birth to the king or even being the creator of the king. What he's referring to is the time of the king's revealing. It's when he made known to the world, so to speak, that he chose him to be king. He is the chosen one, and God is making that declaration in time. Today is the day the Lord revealed him and made known his divine appointment of this king. As soon as it became known that he that he was made king by divine appointment, he came forth, and listen to this language, as one who had been lately begotten of God. That is John Calvin. And that's the way he described this decree. The king, in a sense, became the Lord's son on this, his coronation day. Today I have begotten you. You are my son, and I am your father. Then the Lord tells the king, His son, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. 
You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Of course, the Father will give the Son whatever he asks. He will grant him absolute dominion, both the authority and the power to rule. And his dominion will be over all nations and will extend to the ends of the earth. That is scene three. The king declares the decree of the Lord. In the fourth and final scene, the psalmist declares the demand of the Lord, what the Lord demands of these rebels. And then he concludes with a beatitude. Verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Isn't it interesting that the Lord does not immediately strike down these rebels? He certainly could have. He would have been just to do so, yet he mercifully gives them an opportunity to submit to his king. But in doing that, he issues them a terrifying wake-up call. Be wise, be warned. And then he makes two demands of them. First, they must worship him. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. If you compare that language with Hebrews chapter 12, you'll see why I lump those two clauses together as a single command for them to worship him. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, that is, with a heart of gratitude, let us offer to God acceptable worship. How? With reverence and awe. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. The posture we take in worship is that of serving God with fear. Yet, it is a rejoicing with trembling. There is an appropriate sense of awe and fear and trembling as we enter the presence of the Lord and as we are exposed to his holiness. And yet at the same time, there is in worship an overwhelming joy that floods our hearts as we delight ourselves in the Lord. That is the experience of worship. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. That's the first demand that the Lord makes of these kings. Worship him. The second demand is that they must submit. Verse 12, kiss the son. The language here is is of complete submission to the will and good pleasure of another. To kiss the son is to get on your face before him and put your lips to his feet. It is to pay homage to the one who you recognize as far greater than yourself. The Lord gives the king, these kings two reasons to submit. One is a warning and the other is a promise. First, the warning. Those who do not pay homage to this king will perish. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. The king's wrath will be poured out against rebels. Do not presume upon his patience and long suffering. 
You are not safe living in your deluded rebellion against him. The king's wrath is quickly kindled against traitors like you who conspire against him. Now the promise. Look at the last eight words of this beautiful psalm. This is incredible. These words are addressed to everyone, rebels included. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Happy is the man who takes refuge in the Lord's anointed king. These words are not what we expected. I don't know about you, but I expected fire from heaven. Happy is the man who takes refuge in the Lord's anointed king. The language of taking refuge in the king or in the Lord is all over the Old Testament. Two very familiar examples to us. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And changing up the language ever so slightly, blessed is the man whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Here's what struck me as I meditated on that eight-word beatitude. By the promise of blessing for those who take refuge in his king, the Lord seems to be going farther than merely demanding that rebels submit to him and to his king. Taking refuge in him means that you trust him, that you put your well-being into his Hands, and that you look to him to be your strength, to fight for you, to protect you, and to save you from your enemies. Your hope is in him for your salvation. That's far more than mere submission, like a slave cowering before his master. This is not that. This is trust and dependence upon the king. So the demands of the Lord to these rebels are that they worship his king, that they submit to his king, and more, that they put their trust in his king. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. So what are we to do with this psalm? How are we to apply it this week in our lives at work and in our families Well, first, let me show you how this psalm is about Jesus. David and his kingdom were but shadows of something much greater. And after that, we will bring it home. Who was this true offspring of David to whom this psalm pointed? We could make the connection any number of ways. This is where I was overwhelmed by all of the Old Testament and New Testament connections with this psalm. It goes back to Genesis and it takes us all the way to Christ being the final judge and the king of kings in the book of Revelation. But I'm just going to take a look at one verse and show you how the New, the New Testament authors connected it. And that's verse 7. Remember this is scene 3 and the king is speaking. I will tell the decree, the king says, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us in their accounts of the gospel that the first half of that verse was announced by a voice from heaven, 
at Jesus' baptism and from a cloud at His transfiguration. Paul connects this decree to Jesus by applying it directly to His resurrection. This was in the sermon at Antioch that I quoted earlier. And here's it in full. We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And the author of the book of Hebrews applies the same decree to Jesus' ascension. So I think you're getting the baptism, his transfiguration, his resurrection, and now his ascension. And the author of Hebrews makes the point that Jesus was greater than even the angels. After making purifications for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. That second quotation, if you remember, is from the Davidic covenant that we read earlier. I will be to him a father, God said to David, and he shall be to me a son. So the New Testament authors applied the prophecy of Psalm 2-7 to Jesus' baptism, his transfiguration, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And each of those uses fit perfectly with how it was used originally of the Davidic king. Today is the day the Lord revealed Christ and made known His divine appointment of Him as His Son. This was the day of His revealing, when the Father made Him known to the world, so to speak, that He chose Him to be the King. R.C. Sproul paraphrased it like this, "'Today, in raising you from the dead, I am declaring that you are my Son, and I am your Father.'" And that is just one verse connecting this psalm to the New Testament. There are connections with at least six of these 12 verses, and this is worthy of volumes of writing. And more than just a sermon series. But it's safe to say that this psalm was really pointing forward to King Jesus, the son and true offspring of David. His kingdom is the everlasting kingdom. He is the Lord's anointed. And if that's true, then the direct application of this psalm becomes clear. We're not just talking about the enemies of Israel raging against their God and their king. This is about King Jesus and his right to rule over all nations and over all people. As his anointed God granted his son the authority and the power to crush all rebellion and to extend his kingdom to the ends of the earth. Therefore, the demands that he makes of his enemies are the demands he makes of us today. Worship him, submit to him, and seek refuge in him or perish as rebels. The question this morning is this, are you a rebel or are you a refugee? John Calvin applied Psalm 2 like this. Let us therefore 
hold this as a settled point, that all who do not submit themselves to the authority of Christ make war against God. Since it seems good to God to rule us by the hand of his own son, those who refuse to obey Christ himself deny the authority of God, and it is vain for them to profess otherwise. Then Calvin cites John chapter 5. For the Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So to the unbelievers in this room, let me say this. You are the rubble plotting against the Lord and against his anointed. You are sinner both by birth and by your behavior. You reject the reign of the Lord's anointed over your life. You see his law as bondage, cords and bonds. You do not acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord's anointed. And though your offenses may seem minor in your estimation, when compared with those around you, they still amount to treason against the king. They might be respectable sins in your eyes, but they are a stench to the one who made you. In Galatians, Paul lists out some of the works of the flesh. His list is telling. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, he wrote. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity. And lest we start to justify ourselves by comparing our sins against the more flagrant sins of society, Paul sprinkles in some of the more respectable ones of which we are all guilty. Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. I warn you, Paul wrote, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not enter the kingdom of God. So what are you to do? Worship the Lord. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Submit to King Jesus. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry with you. And take refuge in King Jesus. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Your rebellion against the King has made you an enemy of the Lord. You are separated from him. and You are hostile to him in your mind and in your evil behavior. But God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What a merciful and gracious king this is. Take refuge in him. Trust in him. Trust that his sacrifice on the cross, the voluntary shedding of his blood, is the only thing that can reconcile you to him. Trust in him, not in the fact that you're good folk, Trust in the righteousness of Christ, not in your own, which amount to nothing but filthy rags anyhow. Trust in King Jesus, and you will be saved from his wrath. To the believer, I have two applications. First, take comfort. Take comfort in knowing that God's rule is not threatened by the raging of the nations around us. As you watch the moral implosion of our society and witness the insanity raging against King Jesus, 
be encouraged. The Lord has enthroned his king on his holy hill, and he has given him all power and all authority. The nations are his, and his kingdom will extend to the ends of the earth. Nothing will stop it. Herod and Pilate could not stop it. Governors and presidents and senators today cannot stop it. Indeed, the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. King Jesus has overcome the world. And second, the blessing for those who take refuge in the king belongs to you. This coming week, you will have many chances to take refuge in him. The war against spiritual darkness is raging all around us. The nations are raging. Take refuge then in the Son. Cling to his promises. He alone is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, this, uh, this psalm is such a delight. Father, thank you for ending it with a blessing for those who take refuge in you. Father, teach us. Teach us how we are to live as refugees. And Father, I pray that for any rubble in this room that you would awaken them and that they would heed your warning to be wise and be warned. And I pray that you would draw their hearts into worship and submission and that they would embrace you, trust you, and find the refuge in you. Father, do that miracle in their heart, and Father, help us to continue every day this week to take refuge in your King. I pray this in your King's name, Jesus. Amen.